Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, brought to you by Carvana. We sell cars, but we are not car salesmen. Featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one, Mats Vlander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So, take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. We are KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we're a two-man team tonight. Johnny Levine, who is taking a well-deserved break, he's down in Israel after being hard at it, putting on the Arizona Tennis Classic, which was a huge success. It's the great Mats Vlander, seven-time Grand Slam champion, International Tennis Hall of Famer, former number one in the world. I'm your host, Andy Zoden. And, Mats, we've got so much to get to. Miami has come and gone. Houston, the, the U.S. clay courts have come and gone. The tour has moved over to Europe. They're in Monte Carlo as we speak. But let's start with this. I found it interesting that two Americans would make it to the finals of the U.S. clay courts albeit not necessarily the two that would come to mind as being clay court specialists when you see a final with Riley Opelka and John Isner. Does this speak optimistically about Americans' chances of performing well in the clay court season, or does it just mean that we don't have any clay quarters in the purest sense of the word that are going to be able to go and do some damage over there in Europe? Andy, pleasure to be with you. Um, you never introduce yourself as a former Texas Longhorn. You should do that. You should do that. All right. I am a Texas Longhorn and a proud Texas Longhorn, especially now after watching my boy Scotty Scheffler do what he did and take down uh, the green jacket and another Longhorn to get that done. So thank you for bringing that yeah, up. Well, that's know. amazing. And you guys have a great tradition of great golfers and tennis players, of course. Opelka Isner, John Isner always talked about clay courts being nearly his best surface because he has a little more time um, and he can, the ball bounces high. He's very tall. So that wasn't a problem. His serve is a weapon on a clay court as well. He had his best wins in Davis Cup while Jim Courier was the captain. He actually had them on clay. He beat Roger Federer in Switzerland. He beat, uh, I believe, Tsonga and Gilles Simon in France on clay. So he, he's great on clay. And then you take Raleigh Opelka, same thing. Uh, Riley Opelka obviously moves a little bit better uh, than John Isner, but the same result with the serve. So I think it just goes to show that these guys are dangerous on any surface. I mean, personally, I would prefer to play them on a clay court, but I think that's until you actually realize how high that serve bounces. It's not, and I think a few of the American players did not play in Houston because they're going over and uh, get ready for Monte Carlo and the European clay court swing, but I think it's great. I think it's, it, I believe it's the, it's the uh, tallest final ever on the ATP <laughs> tour, which is interesting. And I, and I really like that Riley Opelka is taking John Isner's place. I wish this was the, the case on the regular tour as well, where, where they actually kick out the, the former greats. But uh, Raleigh Opelka is the real deal for me. The fact that John Isner can get to finals is just, um, I mean, evidence of someone who's just a great tennis player on any surface, and he's a, an unbelievable competitor. Uh, right, River Oaks, which is where they played, is most probably 
the most slippery clay court that I have ever played tennis on. So making fast moves is very difficult. And uh, I think it suits the two of them perfectly. So not at all a, a, a negative sign for American clay court tennis, but just, hey, Raleigh Opelka is there to stay. John Isner is still around. And you made comments that most of the Americans, lots of the Americans are already over in Europe. But, I mean, this draw, match had Taylor Fritz. It had Francis Tiafo, It had Tommy Paul. It had the kid that we really kind of fell in love with down in Phoenix, J.J. Wolf, who actually had a nice win over another American, Jensen Brooksby. So it, it may, if you had to, uh, you know, kind of comment on who is the most capable clay court player in the purest sense of that pack of Americans, would you have to go with Taylor Fritz just by virtue of the fact that he he won Indian Wells, beating Rafael Nadal in that final? Or with what we've seen, you 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 quoted several great results from John Isner, and I'm not, I'm not sure that most impressive uh, result of Isner's might not be just the simple fact that he took Rafael Nadal two five sets at the French Open several years back. I actually saw that match live, and that was the – the most scared I've seen Rafael Nadal ever be on the Philippe Chatrier center court at, uh, at Roland Garros. Of course, he looked a little bit scared when he lost to Robin Söderling in that famous match. But, um, well, I think Taylor Fritz should have a great clay court game. I'm not quite sure about his movement. I think he's, he, you can exploit his movement a little bit. I like someone like Tommy Paul, actually. Tommy Paul comes in there, and if he has a good attitude, then I do think that Tommy Paul would be a, a great clay quarter. Francis Tiafoe should be, because he's played. he basically grew up on clay at the JTCC in College Park, moves unbelievably well, forehand with a lot of topspin. So I, I still don't. You know, I think the Americans can do well on clay. I don't see why Americans should be better on a grass court, for example, than on a clay court. So um, I think that it's going to be a great year for American tennis. Obviously, Taylor Fritz comes in with a lot of pressure right now. And that's what I don't – I don't I, – I think it's tough for players that have a great Indian Wells, Miami, maybe even Australian Open. Now you've got nearly two months of literally um, – risking losing all your confidence, not feeling comfortable at all for about two months on European clay courts. So it's not like Taylor Fritz can ride the momentum very far. Uh, but uh, again, he's, he's a great ball striker. And I think he showed that he's a fighter. But I like them all. I like the Americans on clay. I, I think it's more a mindset. I mean, Jim Courier obviously proved to Americans that, that uh, playing on clay is, uh, is actually an advantage when you run around and hit a bunch of forehands. Michael Chang most probably broke the curse while, by winning 1989 at the French Open. Uh, but, um, yeah, I like it. I think it's important for the Americans to go to Europe and commit, commit to being over there for three or four weeks in a row and not sort of come back to America should they lose early. I think that's key. One of the guys, speaking of that clay court mindset that we would be remiss not to give some love to, has got to be Dennis Kudla, Matt's because we watched him grind out that that victory in Phoenix at the Arizona Tennis Classic, not just the singles, but the doubles, take a red eye on Sunday night, fly to Miami, win a couple of tough qualifying matches, win a first-round match, the opponent escapes me, but then beat Lorenzo Sonego in the next round, so that's a quality opponent, narrowly lose 
his what would have been 10th win in a row by losing a third set tiebreak to Tanasi Kokonakis. So I think among all of these great Americans that we're talking about, how about just some love for Dennis Kudla for being out there grinding away, not necessarily the size and stature or even weaponry of some of these other players, but what a what what a mindset to just go out there and 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 take a lunch pail and a hard hat to work every day and be a pro. Oh, just unbelievable. I've, I've uh, known Dennis for a long time. Uh, I used to do some work at the JTCC in College Park and, and played with him a few times. Uh, he came to visit my house here in, uh, in Idaho. And this is when he was, I think, a senior in high school. And he was talking about being a pro. He's not going to college. Um, and uh, I mean, it's you have to say that Dennis Kudla is having a successful tennis career. He's made, I think, the fourth round at Wimbledon a couple of times. Did he even make the quarters at Wimbledon one year? He might have, but he's a great grass court player. He's an unbelievable fighter. And I think it's really important for the other American players to have a young veteran in Dennis Kudla pushing from behind. Hey, guys, you got to step it up here because I'm still here. He beat J.J. Wolf in that tournament, but he's, he's an unbelievable fighter, makes, of course, the doubles title as well. I don't even know. Dennis Kudla, I mean, he's 28 years old, I think. There's no reason why Dennis Kudla shouldn't have his best tennis ahead of him. There's no reason why his best tennis is not right now, but, but it's him that is important for American tennis. We want the American Grand Slam champions, but you got to have these guys like Dennis Kudla that are pushing the youngsters, that there are tough opponents on the court, but also role models in the locker room, in the players' lounge, the way he deals with everything. So couldn't happen to a nicer guy than Dennis Kudla. Well, his his countryman that he came out of juniors with was was Jack Sock, and it's almost as if if you took Jack Sock's talent and weaponry and blended it with Dennis Kudla's mindset, you might have an American Grand Slam champion because between the two of them, they've got all the goods. Uh, it's just a, a matter of the fact that, that Sox got the big game and Kudla's got the tough mind. So when we come back, Matt, let's shift gears and let's talk about a guy that had a coming out party in Miami. And when we talk about a serious contender at the French Open, this has got to be one of the first names that you mentioned. We'll talk about that guy. I'm sure all of you know who we're about to talk about when we come back on kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Johnny's gone this week. It's Matt's and AZ back right after this. Hey guys, Andy Zoden here with Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm excited because we're joined by Courtney Ward. And Courtney, you are in sports nutrition and you are with Body Fuse. Talk about how people north of the age of 45 are keeping fit and some of the things that they're doing to look like you do. Well, hey, thank you, Andy. I so appreciate you having me on the podcast. And yeah, my company, Body Fuse, it's a sports nutrition company and I'm 48 years old. And first and foremost, I think we just simply after 40, 45 years old, we have to keep moving, doing the things you like to do and support that with sports nutrition. And the Body Fuse lineup has everything to help you from pre-workout, intra-workout and post-workout. And I think, you know, post 40 folks, it becomes very critical for us to support our bodies, both nutritionally and physically. 
So, you know, speaking to weight loss, the Body Fuse lineup has some great products uh, that specifically help to increase resting metabolic rate. And that's, uh, that's a product called a thermogenics and moving your body is key as well and doing it smart and supporting that with a post-workout is also very, very important as we, as we get older. How do folks get a hold of you? Our demographic of the folks that listen to our show happen to be right in your sweet spot. And I think it's a, a kind of a match made in heaven. My company is a company called Exclusive Nutrition Products. And I own, uh, within Exclusive Nutrition, we have basically three brands. Body Fuse is what we've been talking about is, is, is one of them. Black Dragon Labs is the second and Next Level Nutrition is the third. And our websites, uh, Body Fuse websites is bodyfuseusa.com and Black Dragon Labs is blackdragon-labs.com. She is Courtney Ward and she is a sports nutritionist and a tennis player. Courtney, thank you very much. Well, thanks so much to you. I appreciate it, Andy. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, Tennis Channel Podcast Network, three-time French Open champion, Mats Vlander. I'm AZ, Andy Zoden, and per Mats' request, former Texas Longhorn, and we're celebrating that because our boy Scotty Scheffler has made Texas Longhorn Nation very proud. Mats, this is the 40-year anniversary of your French Open victory in 1982 as a 17-year-old, and now we've got an 18-year-old that could potentially go over there and give that tournament a run for its money, a coming-out party for Carlos Alcaraz winning the Miami Open over another guy who really has all kinds of clay court potential uh, as far as winning at a big level, and that's Casper Ruud. But let's start with Alcaraz. For those that didn't already see this coming how far along is this guy in his quest to become a Grand Slam champion, in your opinion? Well, I don't think he's uh, that far away at all. I think he's very far along. He, he, he has qualities that I um, liken to someone like Boris Becker. When Boris Becker came through and won Wimbledon in 1985 as a 17-year-old, I had just won the French Open that you mentioned 40 years ago. I was the youngest ever. And here comes Becker, and he's a couple of months younger than me. And I've always thought about why. Why could Boris win at Wimbledon? I mean, the French Open for me, yes, it's a big, big surprise. But I didn't really do that much. I kept the ball in play, didn't get tired. Bjorn Borg's ghost was clearly still walking around at Roland Garros when it comes to Ivan Lendl uh, have never won it. Guillermo Villas won it once. But Boris Becker turns out to mentally be the strongest of all players in that draw uh, at Wimbledon in 1985. And just to mention it, he defended the title in 1986 as an 18-year-old. Carlos Alcaraz, to me, has that same demeanor. Like, he actually loves being on, on the big stage. I did, too. Don't get me wrong. Michael Chang did too when he was 17. And of course, Michael Chang has the record for the youngest male Grand Slam winner of all time. But you couldn't tell. You couldn't see it. With Alcaraz, he embraces the crowd. Uh, he plays a massive game 
drop shots, comes to the net, serves and volleys. I mean, against Kasper Ruud, who's got great returns, who's right. really fast. Unbelievable. So I think that, again, Rafa Nadal obviously have paved the way for someone like Carlos Alcaraz, just like Bjorn Borg did for me. Because I think with Nadal, it's difficult to imitate him being a left-hander. It's difficult to imitate his forehand topspin. But it's not difficult to imitate his body language on the outside. Right. I don't know what Alcaraz feels on the inside. But this is the way you behave on the court because that's what Nadal does. And that's what Carlos does. But he genuinely looks like he loves the big stage. Yes, it's, it's a, a, a sort of a homecoming for him. But I, I remember that match against Stefanos Tsitsipas at the U.S. Open last year. That was the big match where he broke through on the big stage. So I'm not surprised. I think he goes in as maybe the third, fourth favorite to win Roland Garros this year. Has he moved ahead in your mind? If you had to go to the window in Las Vegas and, and put money down on a guy to get a win for you, do you – find yourself being more confident with Alcaraz than you would a Zverev or even a Medvedev or a Tsitsipas at this point in time? Has he moved ahead of them, at least in your mind? That is a big uh, statement. And I can't believe that I most probably, I am agreeing with you. Okay. There is something about Alcaraz that is, and I know that I said that I thought Stefanos Tsitsipas was going to be the first guy of this generation to win a Grand Slam. Of course, I was wrong. Daniel Medvedev, of course, is the first guy. Tsitsipas maybe should have won the French Open last year. Two sets to love up against uh, Novak Djokovic. But he seemed to have a maturity. But tennis-wise, I feel like Alcaraz, tennis-wise, we're talking technical stuff. He doesn't have a weakness. He's got an amazing forehand, maybe the best forehand in the game, together with Kasper Ruud and, of course, Rafa Nadal. He's got a great two-handed backhand, one of the better backhands. I think he's the fastest player on tour. I really do. The way that he explodes uh, uh, from the corners and the way he also uses it to go forwards. And then I have to say that if you put Alcaraz's hands in the same competition as Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic, I say he'd give them a run for their money. Wow. I mean, the drop shots that he hits are amazing. The uh, intuition to understand when they need to be hit is incredible. Of course, he most probably will end up hitting too many drop shots at some point, but I don't see a weakness except his serve. But as you look back at Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic, their serves, they haven't been a weapon for, you know, the last few years, maybe. But in the first four or five years on tour, their serves were not a weapon. So Alcaraz, he puts the first serve in play. He can crank it up 135 miles an hour if he wants to. Um, I really don't see a weakness. And I'm going to ask you a question, actually, because you came out, and, and I'm not going to put you on the spot, but you're not the tallest player out there, Andy. <laughs> and Carlos Alcaraz is actually shorter then Zverev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Rublev. I mean, he's normal size, sort of six foot, maybe six foot one. So what does it what advantage is that to him, do you think, having grown up not being the tallest, maybe just the fastest? 
Well, you now said that I'm not I'm not necessarily a clay court specialist and I'm not the tallest guy out there. So uh, in your own Swedish way, you are really the master of the understatement, I think, Matt. It's a compliment, Andy. I, <laughs> you I, on to I, the team at the Longhorn and you're not the there tallest. There you go. How did you do it? How, what's the advantages, you reckon? Well, you know, it's funny because when I asked one of the pros at the club, at the resort, which was the Lakeway World of Tennis, and a tremendous stable of pros there. And one of the things that our director of tennis, Billy Freer, used to say is that it's very important that a player know their identity and they know what they take to the court and they can clearly define it in no uncertain terms. And I wasn't sure I was able to do that at age 22, 23. So I sort of had to ask one of the other guys, well, what do I do? And and he said to me, a guy by the name of Dwayne Egerberg, who was man of few words, uh, Scandinavian descent from Fargo, North Dakota. And he said, well, If one of my friends was playing you in a tournament and they said, I'm playing Andy Zoden, what should I expect? His response was that you should expect to be kept off balance. I thought, okay, I can, I can live with that. I have a tendency to, you know, kind of wrong foot people and try to go behind them and kind of knock returns down and maybe, you know, a short return followed by a lob over their head and just, just kind of try to be a little bit of a crafty player. Cause I certainly wasn't going to overpower anybody but maybe have a little bit of craftiness and guile, maybe that was born of some doubles instincts, but effectively that was what I did. And so once I figured that out and I was able to really embrace that concept, I I was able to uh, you know spend more time trying to develop the things that would make me even better at what I was already, I guess, perceived as, as, as decent at to begin with. Uh, but, but in the case of Alcaraz, he's, he's not the biggest guy out there, but I think a lot of people feel like he may be off the ground, the biggest hitter out there. And so that's sort of the thing that you don't necessarily see coming is that you expect the Riley Opelkas and the John Isners of the world, who we spoke about earlier, to be, you know, bombing you off the court, you know, and taking the racket out of your hand with their serve game. And then there are certain guys that are that are huge, that hit a huge ball off the ground. And we've become accustomed to what Nadal does with us for him. But Alcaraz is taking just blistering groundies and taking that to a new level. So I, I guess I'll, I'll send a question back to you and ask, is something involving Alcaraz our now dream final for the French Open? Meaning, is it Alcaraz Djokovic? Is it Alcaraz Nadal? Is that something that people would prefer to see than another Nadal Djokovic match? I mean that you're so you're so right, because that's the coolest thing with uh, with Alcaraz is that of course it's cool to watch an 18-year-old. Of course everybody's going to be rooting for him. But really, in the end of it, I mean, the crowd in Miami, they were going nuts, nuts, because there are so many unbelievably good points when Alcaraz is involved, because he's so fast, because he hits that drop shot, because he comes to the net and he exploits the weakness of his opponent but he also invites his opponent to play a little bit of the cat and mouse game so that we get to see a Casper Rude, by the way, in the finals, who nearly desperately tried to get to the net after anything. I've never seen Casper Rude do that before. And that was fun to see. So I think that he's becoming a crowd favorite so quickly and it doesn't have anything to do with that he's 18 years old. That's just a bonus. But as a player, as an entertainer, and as somebody that you could get behind because you know that he's going to crawl off the court uh, before this match is over. He's going to hit every shot that you ever want to see on a tennis court. 
Um, and uh, it's going to be entertaining. Can he keep his emotions in check in terms of not being too positive? I guess that's a big question. But yes, I would love to see. I mean, maybe not Alcaraz against Rafael Nadal because they're both Spaniards. But really, as a clay court match, that would be insane. And of course, Alcaraz against Djokovic would obviously be incredible. But also, the sensitive matches to me right now is Alcaraz against Tsitsipas, against Medvedev, against Zverev. Because remember, Kei Shikori, Marin Cilic, Milos Raonic, right? They were beaten so many times by Federer Nadal Djokovic. Cilic in the end did win a major, but really they, they, their confidence, uh, self-esteem, I think, was broken before they even got out there. And now you're watching Tsitsipas and Medvedev, they actually have decent records against the big three. Here comes Carlos Alcaraz, and he might steal, uh, steal the limelight away from these guys. I mean, they're going to have to start winning soon because Alcaraz, is he a better clay quarter, hard court player, or a grass court player? I have no idea. Looks like he can play on any surface. So what, an, what a welcome surprise to have an 18-year-old come in and be that stable emotionally and be that dangerous. And, and you know what? For the first time, Andy, for the first time in my life, I will say that the drop shot is a weapon for him because he's got such a huge forehand and when he can cut it off and hit drop shots in between, I mean, you, I don't know, the guys, he's going to hurt a lot of knees out there because guys are going to be twitching and they're going to be close to the baseline and then they're going to have to run backwards because the forehand comes and then go forward. So, I mean, he, he's a nightmare tactically. I'm going to say this, Matt, before we go to break, and that is that for me the dream final is, is Alcaraz Nadal because it reminds me going years back of a young Andre Agassi playing an aging Jimmy Connors at the U.S. Open and how much theater that was and how incredible that was to see the young Agassi go out there against a guy you know, that he had hit with probably Agassi when he was three years old. I think there's film of him uh, playing Connors and to see those two very strong personalities get after each other. And I think that Alcaraz versus Nadal would probably be a little bit more respectful on the surface, but I think the contrast in styles and that Spaniard, that Spaniard game on, on, on Roland Garros would be, would be phenomenal. All right, let's come back. We got more housekeeping. We got more uh, storylines. We got more to get to. You're listening to kickserveradio.com part of tennis channel podcast network back with more right after this. Okay, everybody, on kickserveradio.com, you know we talk a lot of tennis, but we would be remiss not to talk some pickleball. And coincidentally, I happen to be joined by the co-founders of Georgie and Lou. This is a pickleball bag and accessory company, and I, I happen to be joined by Lori Manzer and Mimi Kuchman. Mimi, your product is, I would have to call it a unicorn. It, it really does mix function and fashion, and it solves a lot of the pain points for pickleball players. Just talk about the bag itself. Tell these folks what they have to be excited about if they happen to order from you guys. 
So the bag fits anything and everything that you could possibly want to play pickleball. It has places for your water bottle, the balls, um, your keys, all kinds of things. But the best thing about the bag is it's got a carabiner on our new system that you can actually hang onto the gates. It keeps it off of the ground and it's perfect. Seems like you guys have kind of branched out a little bit, Lori. It's not just bags. You got accessories now too. We do. And our new line's coming out before summer and we'll have a lot of different straps that kind of work across the whole collection. So you can kind of make the bag your own. We're going to have tassels and charms and straps. And so you'll really be able to personalize the bag and feel like it's yours and nobody has a bag like yours. So one thing I've learned from my good friend, Karen Schott down at the Broadmoor is that Pickleball players want pickleball gear. It's not just a matter of sharing with the tennis people anymore. There is a a clear line of demarcation, and they can get that from you guys. So, Mimi, where do they go? So, you can go online at georgieandlou.com. It's G-E-O-R-G-I-E-A-N-D-L-O-U.com. And you'll be on the court looking stylish and ready to go. They are Lori Manzer and Mimi Kuchman. The company is Georgia and Lou. Go to georgianlou.com. I promise you, you are going to love what you see. Get it for yourself. Get it as a gift. But get you some of that pickleball gear from Georgia and Lou. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Final segment. A couple of things I want to get to before I bring Matt's back in. I was in Orlando, Florida for a tennis conference at the National Tennis Campus, and I watched some of the national championships of the tennis on campus, which is the level of tennis that they play. They call it club tennis. And it was such a fabulous event that when they talk about, well, what's wrong with American tennis? I can tell you this tennis on campus and those national championships are what's right with American tennis. And I saw the future of our industry, some young aspiring future club pros and teachers, people that were out on the court because they were passionate about the sport because they love being out there. And in many ways, Matt's, are, are maybe following in your footsteps, not necessarily from the playing perspective and the championships and the professional career, but for the love of the sport. That's where you find it, are those players that are out there playing college tennis at the level of just, I just want to be out here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I traveled around um, America for about eight years um, doing uh, V-Lander on wheels. And I did a few in Europe as well. And the difference when, with American tennis, and I'm now not talking about college players, I'm talking about the attitude by 3-5, The attitude towards the game and the attitude towards improving is amazing in America. You go to Europe, no one wanted to do any drills. They just want to play points the whole time. And I don't, I want to try and help them. In America, amazing how driven they are. So, I mean, I think that it's, an Amer- American tennis right now is boiling. I mean, it really is boiling. And we just need one man. And Taylor Fritz might have done it. But we need, if we get a guy who starts winning a major or two, I think tennis is about to explode because um, the players that are coming from behind, the kids, 
Uh, obviously, college is getting better and better, meaning you can now go through the American university system and turn pro afterwards. Cameron Norrie has showed that. John Isner has showed that. And once that becomes uh, the pathway, suddenly we're looking at American tennis like American golf, with obviously Scotty Scheffler being a, being a long one. But that, that's the pathway for them. And I think in tennis it's going to become the pathway as well, or it can be. So I agree with you, Andy, that the attitude towards improving and taking tennis seriously, America is a step ahead for, uh, compared to Europe for sure. Now, is there too much pressure for the guys that and the girls that are winning 12 and under, 14 and under, 16 and under, and 18 and under because America is such a big country that being number one in your age group puts an enormous amount of pressure on you. And how do we deal with that? How does that person deal with that? Because I think it's a, it's a collective thing that the USTA and people have to help out here. It's very difficult to be an American that pulls all the pressure with them and deals with it these days. Another guy that played college tennis, that's another guy that we can only keep our fingers crossed that he continues his ascendancy toward the, you know, the, the, the upper regions of the rankings who I think really brings the cool factor and does it in a humble way. I think since we got to know him a little bit, how hard is it not to root for JJ Wolf? And when we saw him actually make the top 10 on sports center with that electrifying left-handed forehand up the line against Tsitsipas and the reaction that he had to it and the reaction that people have to him. I mean, how great is that kid for American tennis mats? Yeah, just so good. I mean, he's such a nice guy. I hate oh. that he uh, changed his hairstyle in a way. I <laughs> lost that mullet. Cameron Smith, the, uh, the the Australian who nearly won the Masters. I mean, he, he has one of those. You know what I think is really important for American tennis? And I, now I'm talking about J.J. Wolf and Francis Tiafo. Um, I think it's really important that American uh, tennis fans and, and, and America is a tennis-loving country – that they get to know these guys because right. if you just watch JJ Wolf on TV or live and you don't get to talk to him, you're going to be, whoa, this guy seems like he's, wow, does he have a little bit of a chip on his shoulder or right. is he just overconfident or because he reacts slightly different or should I say, not like a, a normal tennis player. We've seen Francis Tiafa over the years react more like the way that the NBA players react when he's winning points and it's not really tennis culture, but there's nothing wrong with it. So I think America needs to get to know these guys. Uh, and I mean, to go and watch JJ Wolf at the U S open in a five set match and you go and root for him. That's what he needs. And that might be all he needs is to have the whole stadium behind him. Of course, he needs to be good enough to be able to carry that. But I think that it's time to get to know Taylor Fritz, Tommy Paul, Raleigh Opelka in a, in a different way so that people can really, really get behind their personalities, not just them as players. Andre Agassi was accused of being a little bit more about image than he was about substance in the early years of his career. And it sounds like that's what you're making sure that that these guys don't get sort of caught up with as being more of a showman than an actual competitor on the court. And I think that when you do get to know them, you realize that these guys are working as hard as anybody else out there, but they just feed off the energy of the crowd. And to your point, Matt, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It makes it a lot of fun to go 
watch a tennis match. And we just hope that that Francis and, and, and JJ and all these other young Americans that really seem to be coming into their own, Tommy Paul included, and obviously the final with uh, Raleigh Opelka winning at River Oaks. Uh, with a win over Big John Isner, uh, all those guys are, are are really bringing a lot. And Dennis Kudla in his own way. There's so many guys to be complimentary of. But we can't go an entire show without talking about someone who won the Sunshine Double this year and is now the number one player in the world on the women's side, and that's Iga Svantec. And before we go, your and your 40-year anniversary of winning the French Open, I think you mentioned, if I'm, if I'm not off base here, that you might be presenting the trophy to the winner of this year's women's French, and you might be handing it to her. She's won it before. She's won it before a couple of years ago. Iga Schwantek is, I mean, if she is a, any kind of surface uh, specialist, she's a clay court specialist. Uh, and now that she's winning on hard court as well, she's just improving every time I see her on court. She in Australia, she was a little edgy, I thought, uh, emotionally. But um, I mean, that, that, it was a tough situation with COVID and no one really knew what was going on. I mean, she played unbelievably well in every single match. Uh, in Indian Wells and Miami. And there is really not a weakness. And you kind of need to be either Naomi Osaka, which didn't work, by the way, to overpower her, right. or an Ash Barty who could mix it up and, and, and exploit the weaknesses of Iga Schwantek. But I say the other ladies, they're going to have to watch out a little bit because she, I could think that she can take a step another step in the right direction, which means she's not only number one in the world, but she'll create a little bit of distance between her and the rest of the ladies. And also, she seems to be good on all surfaces. And, uh, and that's a, a huge. Naomi Osaka, I'm so glad that she's back. But she struggles on clay, or at least has in the past. Uh, and um, I think that... Um, Igor Schwantek, I mean, with what's going on in Poland right now, with Ukraine coming in there, I mean, I don't know how these players actually focus on, on tennis, but um, Igor Schwantek has, has found something and she's going in the right direction. I, I have no doubt that she is the biggest favorite of the French Open this year. I don't really care how she does in the lead-up tournaments. Her game is perfect for play. She's got the look in her eyes, and like yourself, She's got it between the ears and you can see it in her face that she's out there expecting to win every match. And at this point in time, she's got the game to back it up. And I agree with you. She goes into the clay court season as the prohibitive favorite uh, in, in any tournament that she's entered in at the moment. Now, Matt, let's talk about and let's end the show with the fact that this is a, a celebratory year for you. I mean, winning the French Open at age 17, let's talk about, okay, so as we record our show, we're in mid-April right now. Where was your mind in mid-April in 1982 as you started to prepare for the clay court season? You know, when Scotty Scheffler, we keep bringing up his name and why not? They, he talked about, well, I never got this far in my dreams. So you guys are going to have to ask me some questions because I certainly never expected to be here. He's 25 years old. You're a 17-year-old kid. You're, you know, a month and a half away from going to uh, make history the way you did. What were your expectations entering the clay court season as a 17 year old in 1982? Not really any expectations at all to do much. Uh, I had a decent tournament in, in Hamburg, which is the German Open, and lost to uh, Peter McNamara, the late, great Peter McNamara. I believe it was two tiebreakers. Okay. Um, 
I lost in Rome in the semis to Andres Gomez, which was to that point my best result uh, on the men's tour. Um, I, I, I have no idea what... I thought I could win a couple of rounds. I really did because it's five sets, but I never ever thought that I was going to be anywhere close to, to winning. So mid-April, I have just lost to Guillermo Vilas in the tournament in Madrid, about 6-3, 6-3. And I felt completely outplayed. And the reason for that against Guillermo Vilas was that he did to us what Rafa Nadal is doing to players Maybe not so much now, but four or five years ago, where if you played Rafa, you're going to have to hit every single shot above your shoulders or even above your head. And I played Guillermo Vilas, I think, in the maybe second round quarters. No chance at all. I beat Vilas in the French Open. So, no, I thought I could win games in the finals. Not even getting to the finals did I think I have any chance of winning. So I think that really helped me. I think... um, Beating Ivan Lendl in the fourth round obviously gave me a lot of confidence, but Ivan Lendl hadn't won anything until up to that point. And, and I hope Ivan is not listening. But to be honest, <laughs> Ivan Lendl did not try really hard in 1982. I mean, he mentally was a midget as a younger player. He, when he won the French Open uh, in 1984 and he beat uh, Johnny Mack in that finals, which Johnny Mack should have won, something happened to Lendl's mind. He became a... Jo- uh, he became Incredibly strong. He wasn't at that time. So I I didn't really do much. He kind of beat himself. Um, I had no idea how big the step was between being the best junior in the world and being the best uh, clay court player on the men's side. And I actually listened to Tiger Woods um, just before the Masters and Jim Nance did a really, really cool one-hour program with Tiger Woods. And... um, and Tiger Woods said something like, no, I didn't expect to win it in 1997. I didn't even make the cut in 1996. So not even Tiger Woods wow. was able to put himself into being one of the favorites. And he won by, I mean, more than 10 shots, I believe, in 1997. So same for me, Andy. Not any expectations to win whatsoever. Um, and um, expectations to win more as soon as that finals was over against Guillermo Villas. I mean, literally, oh, that wasn't that hard, which it turned out that it was, actually. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I can't really explain it, but I grew from a junior to a man over the course of two weeks. That's obviously what you did. And and, and you, when you talk about Yvonne Lendl, I think about one of the funniest things that anybody has ever said on this podcast, and that was when Yvonne Lendl swore to us that Tony Roach would never admit it, but when Roach was coaching, when Roach was coaching Yvonne, that he swears that he paid certain practice partners to drop sets to him in practice his <laughs> major championships. And I got the biggest kick out of that. And people that don't know Lendl, you talk about the fact that people need to get to know these players. People that don't know Lendl have no idea the dry wit that that guy's got. All right, really quickly, Matt, you spent some time with the folks at Tennis Channel and they did – uh, a little retrospective in celebration of the 40-year anniversary. Uh, without giving too much away, what do tennis fans have to look forward to that will be released that Tennis Channel is doing to celebrate your 40-year anniversary of your historic win at Roland Garros? Yeah, they were really nice. They came here to visit me uh, here in Ketchum, Idaho. Um, they came down to my uh, club, Gravity Fitness and Tennis. They filmed me, do a couple of lessons, 
Uh, I showed them around and did some recreational other sports uh, that they shot. And then we did quite an extensive interview. So I think that they, you know, they're trying to understand how a 17 year old uh, could do what I did. I guess I was trying to give them the background of, of what happened the, the 48 hours before the tournament even started, which was, I was fooled by Andres Gomez in the semis of Rome, which was two days before the first round. I was fooled by him. I thought he was tanking. He's throwing it to me because there was an airline strike with Alitalia. And I thought after winning the first set, I'm sitting in the change of and I said, oh, my God, Andres, he's actually throwing it to me because he knows we can't get to the French Open in time. And then in perfect Gomez style, he beats me in the second set and the third set, something like 6-2, 6-3. We drive all the way to the French Open and we arrive in the morning. I don't have a driver's license because of the airline strike. My coach drives all the way. Wow. And I practice with Jimmy Connors on the Philippe Chatrier court. I've never met Jimmy before. Why on earth I was signed up with Jimmy? I have no idea. But in one of the changeovers, Andy, uh, I was beating him. I remember this. Two people watching my coach, and a buddy of his, and we pass each other in the changeover, and Jimmy Connors calls me a name that I can't even uh, repeat. It was on the – I know the word that he said, and for those that – it was on the George Carlin list of the seven worst things you could say. So carry on. And and I – my coach heard it, and I said to my coach, did you hear that? And my coach said, (laughs) yeah, I heard it. Let's not worry about it. Let's keep playing. And I was like, what do you mean keep playing? Jimmy Connors, who used to be my idol, he called me that name. I can't play tennis anymore. What happens? Connors beats me in the practice set, 6-4. Andres Gomez beats me in the semis of Rome because I thought he was tanking. So how I grew and I realized that anything goes on the men's tour. And that's what what we try to dig into a little bit with the tennis challenge, trying to figure out where my mind was, how could I grow that much in two weeks um, and uh, and beat four players that were all in the top six in the world in uh, Iran Lendl, the great late Vita Skerlaitis, José Luis Clerc, and Guillermo Vilas. I mean, they're all top six players. Wow. I've never even been close to beating this guy. So I don't really know. I'm still confused as to what happened. The fact that it's 40 years ago and the fact that they want me to potentially present the uh, trophy to the women's winner uh, is because of Amelie Moresmo, the new tournament director at the French Open, uh, know that I presented the trophy to the men's winner 10 years ago, so for my 30th anniversary. So I better get out there because you know what happens next year? Next year is the anniversary of Yannick Noah. And everything else is off the table. Okay. Yannick's decade when that starts. Well, a quick shout out to Heath Woodleaf, who was the producer of that piece, who's done such great work with Tennis Channel with their original programming. And I know if Heath is behind the project, it's going to be done very well. And tennis fans should look very much forward to it. All right, Matt, we got through it without Johnny. Wasn't easy, but uh, uh, he is off traveling. And then you've got, you know, people don't know it, but right now your left wrist is on the men. So it's a good thing they got a chance to see you teaching lessons before you had that little minor accident, which hopefully uh, that gets better sooner than later. But congrats on uh, everything that you're going to be celebrated for this year for 40 years. And I certainly appreciate you being a part of, uh, of this project, this kickserveradio.com, because it's been a real honor and a real treat for me. And congratulations on, on everything that happens between now and the rest of the year. 
year because you, you, you deserve it for sure. Thank you, Andy. All right. Good night, everybody. We will see you. Enjoy the clay court season. You will hear from us again before the French Open. And then, of course, Matt's goes to work over the across the pond to work for Eurosport. And you'll be able to catch a lot of great stuff from him at the time. In the meantime, kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We appreciate your support. We appreciate you listening. And we will see you soon. <laughs>